Welcome to the Productive Producer Podcast, brought to you by the Northern Tablelands Local Land Services. This is your podcast for production and management decisions relevant to the Northern Tablelands region. I'm your host today, Max Newsom, one of the livestock officers based at Glenninus servicing the Northern Tablelands. On today's episode, I'm joined by market analyst Simon Quilty. Simon chats about some of the factors at play within the global red meat industry. He also provides a forecast into the domestic sheep and beef prices. Simon, welcome to the Productive Producer Podcast. Thanks, Max. Nice to be here. Thanks for coming along and we're glad you made the trip to the Northern Tablelands and brought the rain with you. Yeah, well, can I tell you, it was touch and go as we were driving up the mid-coast and suddenly had to detour and find our way back another route to get here, but it's good to get here in the end. No, we're glad we could get you here and keen to have a chat to you today today about um, what's happening in the red meat market. Yeah, well, it's been a fascinating year, Max, because of COVID-19, as you know. And, you know, there's been a lot of, I guess, clear take-home messages out of the market But probably the most important part of it today to me is the rollout of the vaccinations globally. And so what we've seen around the world is currently inoculations is sitting at about 362 million globally. And the key markets for us with Australian exports, whether it's lamb or beef, is the US and China and how they're inoculating or their programs are starting to evolve. The US has inoculated 108 million people and China 52 million at this point in time. Other countries, the EU, 50 million inoculations. But look, it's the key markets that really matter to me. So one of the unfortunate things that's happened during COVID-19 is, as we know, we've seen consumers who have stopped going out because of the risk of catching the disease. So we've seen therefore the white tablecloth restaurant industry, particularly in North America, but around the world really suffer. And one of the staggering figures we know is that 17% of all US white tablecloth restaurants have closed permanently due to COVID-19. That's 117,000 restaurants or businesses across North America. That's a staggering number and tragic in the sense that those businesses have been around for many, many years and just simply couldn't survive the lockdowns. So key items like tenderloins, um, lamb racks, those items have really suffered because that's where I guess a lot of the outlets were. And on top of that, key industries like the cruise line industry and the airline industry, which have come to a standstill, have also been important, I guess, market outlets that simply are no longer there. So to me, one of the key effects is that uh, food service um, sector, and we've seen retail as a result really bounce back. But it's really the fast food sector, I think, Max, that is the interesting one. Yeah, Simon, how, how do you anticipate that is going to impact Aussie exports as those markets rebuild? Well, it's a good question. Um, I think that that is in terms of 
food service the one part that we've seen an amazing rebound. And that's related to the fact that drive-throughs in North America, people have got very used to doing that. Home delivery service mm -hmm. as well from a lot of those key, I guess, outlets like McDonald's and, uh, and Burger King. So we've really seen that segment of the market almost return back to normal. And why that's so important for imported beef is that a fair majority of imported beef ends up in that part of the market because of its frozen nature and because it's commodity 90CL, 85CL type beef. Whereas the retail sector has also been the huge winner out of this. So that's grocery outlets across America have spiked. And we saw that in Australia too, with the panic buying that occurred. So they, those two are the really big winners and the retail sector is dominated by fresh produced meat in North America. So it's often very difficult for Australian or any imported to get access to that retail sector. So that's why I guess it's, it's encouraging at least for us that we've seen some return or rebound within that fast food sector, Max. So throughout the pandemic, we've seen consumers become more comfortable with e-commerce. How do you anticipate this is going to play out in the future? Well, it's a great question again, because e-commerce, I think, has really transformed the way in which the consumer eats certain types of meat. And in particular, lamb is a great example. We've seen lamb really respond well to that whole part of the, the market. Year on year, quarterly sales of fresh lamb in America in the last quarter of last year was 33% above the previous year quarter a year ago. And we saw January up 30% for, for lamb. These are extraordinary numbers in terms of the lamb market. So why is there suddenly this resurgence or this interest in lamb? I think it's because the likes of HelloFresh in the market, who are now selling directly to the consumer, has done this amazing job of educating the consumer about how to cook high-end, high-value meat in the US marketplace. So that fear factor has been removed and instead they've been taught and educated how to cook expensive meat. And as a result, the consumer is loving it. So that's just one many example, but the other interesting one to look at is Costco. Costco is a phenomena in America and those large retail outlets, well, they've really accelerated the online sales. They're up 76% year on year in Costco. And in particular, their same day grocery um, delivery business is up 450%. So to me, Costco represents really where the future lies. And to me, even after the COVID-19 vaccination finishes and globally, I think that we have seen a structural change in the market when it now comes to e-commerce. Accelerated, you might say, the use um, or the use of online marketing by 10 years, and in 12 months, we're now where we would have been at in 10 years' time. Simon, China has one of the biggest demands globally for protein. What's this wine herd looking like at the moment? Well, 
Do you want the China version of that, Max? Or do you want the real version, all right? Well, I think our audience would probably want the real version. Okay, all right, I'm glad you said that. Well, let's just put things in perspective. Is that over the last, you know, six months or so, the propaganda, for want of a better word, or the rhetoric out of China has truly been along the lines of saying that they are close to having their herd almost completely rebuilt. So in November, they came out saying there's 90% rebuilt. And then in the last few weeks have come out saying that by June this year, that is in three months time, they'll be back to 100%. Well, they couldn't be further from the truth. And in reality, things have actually got considerably worse in the last six to eight weeks. We estimate that they've lost an additional six to seven, sorry, seven to eight million sows due to another wave of African swine fever. There's been three variations or um, different strains of African swine fever come onto the market. Two produced by illegitimate vaccines that should never have been there, and one, a natural variant. Either way, it's resulted in a, uh, these strains being highly, highly virulent. Just no different to the UK COVID-19 strain that we're aware of in the, um, with COVID. So it's really led to some problems, Max, in terms of controlling the disease. Especially because their swines are high density housing. You bet, yes. That's right. Housing, for a lack of a better word. Yeah. It's, they built these motels, as they're known, but honestly, they went up, not out, in terms of building space, and you would have these structures, and there'd be 30 or more, and each of them would look like they'd house a 1,000 people if it was a hotel. But in reality, they're growing sows and hogs. And the, that was their solution to the problem, was to have these highly concentrated growth areas the problem is that those growth areas meant that the hogs were on top of each other and as this virulent strain came through, it spread the disease quickly. So the solution now is actually the problem. And the net effect is, if you think about a seven to eight million loss in sows and each sow produces eight piglets on average, doesn't take much to work out that there's 56 million piglets that will not be produced in the system. So we've got some real issues within China itself, Max, when it comes to production of pork and hogs for the next two to three years. And those problems they had two to three years ago and that thought of the rebuild has now taken a massive step backwards and that the protein deficiency within China has become enormous again. So China's recently placed restrictions on processing facilities in several countries, which did include eight in Australia. Do you think we'll get back to our pre-COVID import levels into China? Yeah, it's a good question. So let's just put things in perspective. Um, first of all, those eight facilities that have I guess lost their access or license into China. Three of those were due to COVID-19 and they were self-imposed, you might say, because they got COVID-19. And the other five though were imposed because 
you might say, of certificate um, or labelling issues, technical matters. Either way, we still have eight meat plants in Australia that cannot export to China. But in reality, in the last two years, 90 meat plants globally have also not been able to ship there, including the eight from Australia. So it's not unique to Australia. If we lived in a bubble and just looked at the media in Australia, you would think that we're being picked upon and this is an Australian problem only. Well, that's not the case. 90 around the world have been banned from entering into China for all the same reasons that we've been banned. So, have a moment's thought. For Canada, they have 11 plants that have been restricted from shipping there. And that makes up 70% of their pork production or exports into China. So it's been an enormous impact on them as well. Do I think that we're gonna get those reintroduced or those uh, licenses back soon? I'd like to think so. It's tricky. They've been out for a long time. I think it's now well in excess of 12 months that the problem's been going on for some of these. But nonetheless, I'd like to think due to all these recent losses and the great need in protein that's starting to build within China again, that possibly through necessity, that we'll see hopefully these plants be relisted soon. With that, Simon, we might move on and talk about South America. They have a lot of cattle bred over there. What's their herd currently looking like? Well, it's been an interesting last two years for South America as well. Um, and the truth be known that they are both Argentina and Brazil, and to a certain extent Uruguay. But between Argentina and Brazil, they make up 71% of all of China's imports. So they have had a huge influence on global markets in the last two years. Just to put it in perspective, Australia makes up only 7% of that import market. So 7 versus 71%. So what's happened is that China imposed on Argentina and Brazil an age requirement for that market. And that saw, I guess, the mining or the liquidation of the herd within both Argentina and Brazil. That's because the 30 month and younger rule that was required, once they sent and killed all the steers to go there, they then started having to kill the young females, the heifers. And so effectively, if you start killing all your livestock, you're gonna run out of breeders if you're not careful. And that's exactly what's happened is that they have diminished the size of that breeding herd dramatically. And I think what it's meant is that we've seen these dramatic falls in exports out of both countries just in the last few months. A 35% drop in exports out of Argentina for the month of December, and we saw a 32% drop out of Brazil in the month of February, January. So the take-home message is that, that Argentina and Brazil, that the exports out of there will be very tight for the next two years due to the liquidation of their herd, thanks to China, and introducing some very restrictive rules of 30 months and younger. So China's going to be down on pork number. They're not going to be importing as much beef from North America. Yes. Are there positive signs towards Australia? 
Oh, well, everything's positive science towards Australia, no doubt. Um, and the third one to add there is the impact with India and Indian buffalo. And did you know, Max, that Indian buffalo was critical to the Chinese market? In the wet market? In the wet market, okay. but it's through the Grey Channel. So the Grey Channel, once upon a time, existed through Vietnam. And about six months ago, it switched across into Hong Kong for political reasons. But effectively, why there is a Grey Channel? This is the unofficial smuggling of meat across the border into China. And that's because India is a foot and mouth disease country. And by law or by you know decree, China has said no foot and mouth disease, but they need the meat. So what's clear is that with Brazil tightening, buffalo out of India is now being diverted into Egypt, away from Hong Kong, away from the grey market. So not only is the tightening happening because of Brazil, because of Argentina, but now we've added to that the tightening out of India because buffalo is filling the gaps and the holes that were left by Brazil as they tightened up their supply globally. So you said 7% of Australia's exports are going to China. No, no, 7% of total imports in China of beef come from Australia. Of that, is that our higher-end market, and do you see that growing? Um, Well, it's a good question. What proportion of our market is China? And it, it is our third largest market as we speak. But in reality, what's happened is that... China, because of the closure of those eight meatworks, it's been somewhat restricted in terms of how much volume we could actually get into that market. So to me, um, we will see growth in China, but it may not be our number one market this year, but it will be a significant market and it might slip into or come up into number two position because I think their needs are far greater now than they ever were. Simon, what's the impact the large volume of meat that came out of Argentina and Brazil is having? So over the last two years, as they sold the family farm, for want of a better expression, we saw that they really did have a huge impact on what I call the frozen commodity end of the market. So that's like, manufacturing meat, 95CL, 90CL, 85CL, which impacts all producers across Australia. But we saw a huge collapse as they absolutely sold everything into China at huge discounts of around about a 28% fall in commodity type meat. And part of that is related to the fact that the Argentinian peso and the Brazilian real fell out of bed over the last year or so because of the, I guess, um, impact of COVID-19, the uh, stimulus packages in North America, and a myriad of internal problems in both of those countries. So they have had you know, an enormous price advantage over Australia. And then to cap things off, they discounted their meat into one of our major markets, that is China, at huge discounts. And the net effect is, as I told you, is now they have a shortage of meat available globally. So how is Australia going to move into this market space and should we be competing? In that space? Yes. I 
you know, we're always going to be in the commodity end to a certain extent. But to me, really the message of today is the need to, the flight to quality. So while we had Brazil and Argentina flooding the commodity end of the market, during COVID-19, the enormous success story to me was the high-end valued market. So that was both beef and lamb, and in particular that grain-fed sector. And you can see that while there was a 28% fall in the frozen end, that high end actually rose 11%. It seemed almost bulletproof. And we had a moment of scare in about May, June last year, when suddenly certain markets closed off. We had all this Wagyu beef reappear on the Australian domestic market, but it was just a, a mere blip and suddenly the market rebounded and was back on track. So that's one of the clear messages to a lot of us in the industry is the need for us to get better at what we do in terms of quality, whether it's Wagyu, whether it's um, Hereford, Angus, but the better the quality, the, better, the more hope we have of not being in the same laneway as Brazil and Argentina when it comes to selling beef. We want to be out of that commodity laneway if possible. Simon, avian flu continues to have an impact on global protein levels, being active in 37 countries. How do you see this playing out? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, Japan's a great example, Max. In the last week, we've had 77,000 chickens culled or euthanized in Japan. And when you think about just how much it's influenced that market, with 10 million birds so far in the last six months that have been culled or euthanized within Japan, and it now exists out of 17 of their 47 prefectures. So it's everywhere. Interestingly though, demand for chicken in Japan still remains relatively robust. And it says that the pandemic and the eating at home and the desire to cook at home has really been far greater an influence than the, the disease itself, bird flu. But I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that as you said, it's in 37 countries. And there have been hundreds of millions of birds globally that have been euthanized for this problem. And I think at some point, it's a, it's a factor that we need to watch because it could lend itself to even greater demand for beef and lamb. Well, that's what our beef and lamb producers will be liking to hear. Of course. And that'll bring us on to and this is the part I'm sure a lot of people are keen to hear, some of your forecasts. So what is your projection for the nas national herd and flock numbers as we continue to rebuild? Well, so Max, I'm pretty bullish the situation at the moment. And let's be honest, the position that Australia's in, it's been very unclear with the ABS statistics on exactly at what stage in the rebuild we're at. And I can tell you now, after comprehensively looking at this and taking into account the live cattle influence, as well as the dairy liquidation that's been going on for two and a half years, that in actual fact, we went into our serious rebuild in September this year, or last year, I should say. And that in actual fact, the liquidation stopped in January last year when the rain came. It, we just needed to remove the noise, you might say, from the statistics. So with that in mind, I'm expected that 
the peak, like any other rebuild, occurs probably within three, four, five months of once the rebuild really gets underway. And for us, that occurred in January, where we saw the EYCI get to 888 per kilo. That's the highest price, obviously, ever. And the previous rebuild, we got to a peak of 726 in October of 2016. So it's been an extraordinary year in terms of pricing, Max. So why is this 2021 rebuild so unique? Well, it's a numerous number of factors that have, have influenced that rebuild. But the clear one is that um, you know record prices to begin with. We saw also in January a, a, one of the lowest female retentions on record, meaning that the number of females killed in January, in particular in Queensland, was extremely low, around 23% that month. And part of that's related to that unusual flood we had back in 2019, January, where 600,000 head were lost. So not only were people in Queensland dealing with drought, but on top of that, they had this bizarre loss due to this bizarre flood that occurred halfway through the drought in northern Queensland. And 600,000 head will make a dent in what's going on. The other factors are that in most global rebuilds, or sorry, herd rebuilds, global meat prices normally have gone up. In the last year, global meat prices fell. So that has been a challenge in itself for the processing sector because they've been wearing losses for so long. And then cattle prices, just the way they've rocketed up. This is the highest rate at which they've moved in any previous rebuild. So it's breathtaking where we've got to so quickly. And last but not least with this rebuild has been farmers' confidence. We've had record low interest rates at near zero. We've had land values at record high rates. And I guess with high value of cattle and lots of green grass out there, dare I say, Max, green fever is alive and well. So do you think we've hit the peak of our cycle at the moment? I do. I think we're, we're at the peak. Um, and we can measure how long these cycles go for. That's, you know, it's fairly, I guess, I wouldn't say commonplace, but in, in reality, over the last previous three rebuilds, the cycles went from anywhere between 210 weeks to 230 weeks. And we're roughly about halfway through that cycle. I think what's clear here is that we will have prices start to fall in all categories. It's just the rate of fall that's so important. But the clear take home message is to me, compared to any other previous cycle, when we're in for a soft landing. And the average value for this cycle, which I think will go from 2019 to 2023, is around 665 cents per kilo catch weight. The previous cycle was 546 cents per kilo. That's a 22% difference, Max. So to me, we're in a, a new realm, and I expect this cattle cycle to finish around about March, sorry, April 2023. And my expectation is that the low in this cycle will be about 5.35 cents per kilo. These are numbers that in previous years, back in the early 2010s, 12s, 
We would have died to have even a number like 535 max. So it's a soft landing. And I think that we can, after this cycle and the next, we'll be back at these kind of numbers again, but that will take a few years to do so. So what's the relationship between the beef and the lamb prices and how intertwined are they? Well, to me, it's a great question, Max, because for years I've been of the opinion that really the high-end beef market, and in particular the grain-fed market, and I am putting both Australia and US together in this category, that lamb has been pretty well up there trading alongside that high-end beef market. So much so to me that lamb prices are actually determined by high-end grain-fed beef prices. And if lamb for one season should actually be short, then lamb prices will sit above those high-end global beef prices. And should lamb supply one season be exceptionally large, it'll fit, it, the, the pricing will sit slightly below that high-end beef price. So to me, lamb's prices are set by high-end beef prices, and it only makes sense, as you can think about consumers, about restaurants, about the choices that they make, lamb is a high-end product. So I think I'm very bullish. I like the thought that we're going to have this enormous bounce-back effect after COVID-19. The expectation GDPs in China will be about 8% this year. And in America, somewhere between 5 to 6%. And globally, it's about 5 to 5.5% is the IMF forecast. So the clear message here is as the world rebounds after COVID-19, that we're going to get very strong, I guess, high-end beef prices. And in turn, that will lead to high, very strong lamb prices in the next coming years. That's going to excite a lot of people, Simon. I I realise that, Max, but they're my genuine thoughts that I think that these are going to be exceptional times for land producers. So what is your forecast within the feeder steer market? Well, it's once again a good question, and I always like to preface this with um, these are just my personal opinions and that I would always advise any of your listeners to seek professional advice from your local stock agent or whoever so but with that said my thoughts in terms of where um, feeder steers are heading is that there's a sweet spot in the feeder steer market and that's about 400 to 440 kilos and i think to me that part of the market will have a soft landing over the next probably three four five months so much so I'm expecting that we'll see the feeder steer market probably gradually come off to around 400 cents per kilo in the next three or four months. And today it sits at 455. And by year end, we could see 350 cents per kilo. I think the real concern, or the, the area to watch for Max where there could be problems, is two fat feeder steers feeder steers that are too heavy because the heavier they become as we move into the back end of the year the bigger the discounts and you might see the 500 to 550 kilo animals we could see discounts against feeder steers of anywhere up to a dollar a kilo for that range i think it's just something for for farmers to keep in mind 
that to continue to put on weight is not necessarily the right decision. And what's your thoughts within the Vialisti market? Well, dare I say, when it comes to Vialisteers, my, um, my forecasts have been somewhat disappointing in terms of the ability to pick where that was heading. But it's been extraordinary. And we know that there's been this huge demand for those younger animals as, you know, restockers, um, feedlotters, backgrounders, everyone's in there trying to buy younger animals. So I think we're seeing prices today sitting about 502 AC per kilo um, live weight. And my expectation is that that may continue at these dizzy heights for another month or so. Particularly after this recent rain? You bet. Yeah. You bet. But I think, the truth be known, we could see that be a gradual tapering off for the balance of the year, and ever so gradual. So we might see it slip to somewhere around $4 to $4.20 by year end. But I think it will be probably the softest landing, you might say, of all the categories, just because it is in such high demand. And for the cow market? Well, Max, dare I say, cows have been disappointing in terms of where I thought they might have ended up. I originally had my cow forecast at 3.44 cents per kilo, but in actual fact, they barely got to 2.95. It was a pretty disappointing, you might say, period for cow pricing. And I'm forecasting probably that within about two months or so, we'll slip from today's price of 2.80 to somewhere around 2.50, where it will remain at that level for most of the rest of the year. So, yes, why has the cows been so disappointing in terms of the upward tick? And it's probably because how difficult it's been in that commodity end of the market. So back to that point I made about Brazil mm. and Argentina and that frozen product that's been on the market and that drop in price of 28%. That's really kept the lid on that cow end of the market is my thought. So I, I think for, we've almost seen, I guess, the biggest downside has already occurred in global markets in some part that's been reflected in this cow market and you know from a trading point of view well that might be the one for a trader to look at because you might say the worst has come and gone in terms of potential downside and risk management there that's right so you know owning cows the drop is going to be a lot less than as we said potentially what heavy feeder steers could result with but anyway, I would always advise people to seek advice before going ahead and making any decisions on buying or selling of these animals. We might shift into the sheep meat industry and look at some heavy lambs. Sure. Well, what a, that is a truly exciting tale. And I think one of the large kind of wins of this year for the sheep meat sector is the fact that they lost three crucial markets in North America. And that is the cruise line industry, the airline industry, and the white tablecloth industry. And yet, remarkably, shipments of lamb into North America went up 3% last year compared to the previous year, even though there was a tightening of supply. So I find that extraordinary. And it all points to 
a really encouraging future. But we saw the return on sales within the lamb sector for the second and third quarter and the fourth quarter of last year up around 30 to 35%. And that carried into January as well in North America. So I'm bullish that I think the strong signs that once we not only get the current market buying well, but those other three sectors that have shut down. So we've found new markets is my point. And then the old markets are going to come back online after the vaccinations have been finished. So stand back and watch the fighting over what little lamb there is in the market available, Max. Right, I'll be hearing people rubbing their hands together. And what's what's happening in the mutton? Well, it too, like lamb, I think is going to surprise us all. And my expectation there is that mutton will lift to around about 760 in about June, July. And just to reiterate what my price point is for, for heavy lamb, I'm expecting about 880 by May, June, July this year, probably in July. So that's a nice, healthy number off the current market of about 806 max. So I'm bullish, as I've said, both. I think mutton too has shown it can be quite resilient and that we're gonna see some nice growth and, and you know potential upside in that market. So the peak is still to come. The peak is still to come. And what are some likely trends you think for 2021 and beyond? Well, I think I'd like to say the key message of yours and my discussion today is the importance for the flight to quality. And that includes Wagyu, that includes high-end Herefords, high-end um, Angus, you name it. But I think that we, the more we can strengthen our high-end, the better. And that's because we want to be out of that commodity beef laneway if we can. We want to be out of Argentina's way, we want to be out of Brazil's way. Because once they get their herds rebuilt after this recent liquidation, which is three years away, you do not want to be standing in front of them. They will overwhelm the world with cheap beef. So we have, you might say, a stay of execution from that part of the market. So that's one of the other key things. COVID-19, you know, the recovery is on its way, the vaccinations are going on, the food service sector is rebounding, hopefully with that. We've got US cattle prices starting to rise with the expectation by May of a 7.5% increase in global, sorry, in US beef prices. And then later in the year, a further 15% by year end. They're really strong signs for Australia because they're our number one competitor in Japan, in Korea, and domestically in the US. So if they lift their prices, it means Australia prices move up with them as well. And then we can talk about Lanina and its persistence. So that's the interesting trend is that it brings wet weather in Australia and it brings dry weather in, in Northern America and in South America. So to me, that's another really interesting take home is that we could see drought kind of induced um, results in that other part of the world. So that can lead to higher grain prices eventually and it can lead to some liquidation in North America of cows. I don't think it's going to happen in Brazil or Argentina because they've already sold the family farm. So there's just a couple to begin with, Max, is some really interesting trends are going to unfold this year. 
Well, Simon, you've given us plenty of food for thought today, and we truly appreciate you coming on the show. Great. Nice to be here, Max, and dare I say, let's hope the floodwaters stop following me, because everywhere I'm going at the moment, it seems to be flooding. Well, if you said four years' time, we, <laughs> you we're in for four good seasons, we're going to have to bring you back in four years' time. Yep. Whenever there's drought, bring me. Yeah. That's what I say. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Simon. Pleasure. Thanks, Max. If you'd like to keep up to date with Simon's forecast and the factors at play within the red meat industry, you can follow him at Global Trends. If you like today's episode, hit the subscribe button. Feel free to jump onto our Facebook page, Productive Producer. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for more episodes. Please note the disclaimer in the show notes as some of the issues and content discussed on this podcast may not be applicable to every farm enterprise and guests and hosts within this podcast are not liable.